Hey, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Extremely grateful for everybody who is with us today here, and certainly a big shout out to everybody who is joining us online. Um, Before we get started in today's message, I want to pray for us. Uh, So God, our Father, you know exactly all of the worries, the concerns, the joys, the, uh, the stressors, all of the things that plague us that we brought in here from Monday through Saturday. God, you know the things that we're tempted to think about even right now, the unresolved issues, uh, the things that we're looking forward to, the good and the bad and everything in between. But Father, in this moment, I pray that we would have unhurried and unbusy minds and hearts that we would be able to receive from you. Lord, I ask that in this moment you would use me to speak to your people and to myself as well. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so when I was younger, I, I basically had to have a way to fund my sneaker habit. And my parents did not want us, me and my older brother, to become entitled. And uh, entitlement basically happens when you have blessing without the struggle. That's a whole uh, different sermon in and of itself right there. Uh, So my parents made me and my brother work, and we would work at their law office, and we had basically every job known to man. I started in cleaning up the office, and they didn't have a a housekeeper, so my brother and I would ride our bikes over on Saturday mornings and clean the office, and I think we would clean the entire office. It would take us hours, and we would get paid like $3 for the whole thing. (laughs) They were lawyers. They were violating many, several labor laws themselves. And then I got elevated, you know what I'm saying? Praise God for promotion, you know what I mean? I went from cleaning up the office uh, to file room. Now, file room might sound like a promotion from cleaning, but I assure you it is not. Uh, My parents would, uh, we would get into the office on a Saturday morning, and there'd be a stack of papers like four inches thick that all had to go in different files. Now, in the filing room, there's all these different cabinets, all with different labels, because labels are incredibly useful for telling you where something belongs. Labels have a way of distinguishing what or who goes where, when something is relevant, and what its purpose is. Now, in other uses, we have labels on all the things that we have, on our clothes, on our our iPhones, right? So if you were to take your iPhone out your pocket or your pocketbook right now, if you have a droid, you can keep that inside. Um, But uh, if you were to take your iPhone out, you would see that stamped and blazoned on it is a shiny Apple logo. The manufacturer or the maker, they put a label on something to let you know what that product is. So labels have a purpose of distinguishing what or or where something goes, when it's relevant, what its purpose is, and what it is. In other words, labels give us identity. Now, I'm going to ask you guys a question that I think is foundational, not just to your spiritual life, but it's foundational to your life. It's, It's this question right here. Who or what has the ability to label you? Who or what in your life has the the ability to give you an identity? Who can tell you what your purpose is? Who can tell you why you exist? Who can tell you where you belong, what you should be doing? Now, for many of us, uh, that question is a question that, although we might be able to give an intellectual answer, we might not really truly know at a heart level and have received what it truly means to have an identity that God wants us to have. And it is an incredible danger if we allow something besides God to give us an identity. Now, one of the challenges about getting older, um, 
there are many, but one of the challenges is you start to really see that you start to become your parents. I mean, slowly but surely, it doesn't happen overnight, and you guys watch out for this. Uh, you start to become your parents, and um, I was talking to my oldest son, and he was clowning me for losing my hair. I was like, well, let's see how well that joke ages in a couple of decades, my friend. Uh, but in, slowly but surely, he's going to start to become like me in the same way that I'm becoming like my father. And if you know my father, you know that my father loves to tell a good story. Not just, uh, not just tell a good story, but you can basically chart how long you have known my father based on how many times you have heard him tell a certain story. And I'm the same way. The other day, I was talking to someone, telling them a story about my pinky, and they're like, bro, stop. Stop. I've heard that seven times already. Please, please, just stop. Uh, but I get it honestly. Uh, but there's one story that my father uh, tells, and he has told, that, to be perfectly honest, I remember it very vividly, not because of how many times he's told it, but how I felt when he actually did tell it. And it was about him in ninth grade when he was in middle school. And uh, my father had a lot of aspirations, and he grew up pretty poor in Buffalo. He likes to make the joke that he grew up po, so poor he couldn't aff afford the last O or R. Um, and certainly that was, uh, you know, how his childhood looked. But he had aspirations, big aspirations, and big dreams. So one day, this little uh, poor black boy from Buffalo walks into his guidance counselor, a nice white man, and they start talking about his future, about what he would put his hands to going towards high school. My father told him that he wanted to go to Hutch Tech, uh, one of the best schools in, in Buffalo. And that nice guidance counselor said, well, have you considered trade school instead? what it would look like to work with your hands and to earn an honest living working on cars, fixing different things, or whatever you have it. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with working on cars, nothing wrong with trade schools. We need people who work in these um, different industries, but there is something incredibly wrong about trying to limit someone in their dreams and their potential because you want to put a label on them. Now, fortunately for my father, he did not receive the label and the limitation that his guidance counselor was trying to put on him, and that poor black boy from Buffalo would go on to start his own law firm, uh, one that I would end up leaving and retiring from very early. But that's a whole other sermon on people-pleasing and living up to your parents' expectations that we're not going to get into today. No, I'm kidding. Wouldn't it have been a travesty, in all seriousness? Like, wouldn't it have been like, wouldn't it ruin your day if I was to say, you know what? He listened to his guidance counselor, and he did exactly what his guidance counselor told him what to do. Like, wouldn't you just feel violated, like something was lost? Like a piece of him was robbed because he let someone who had no business labeling him tell him what he should be and do in life. Let me ask you this question again. Who or what have you given the power to label you? Who or what are you using to fuel and to understand your identity? Now, there's a number of different things in Scripture that have given me so much courage and clarity around uh, this topic. And one of these things actually comes in what's called the temptation of Jesus. Now, Jesus in this account in Matthew 4, and it's actually repeated in other Gospels, uh, Jesus has this one-on-one -on -one encounter with the devil. And it's a really fascinating piece of Scripture, mainly because I think when I think about the devil and what it would look like to interact with the devil, I kind of have this really spooky like goblins and demons crawling on the ground thing in my brain. Uh, I remember when I was in high school and my cousin uh, became a Christian, 
And he became one of those Revelations Christians. Y'all ever met one of them? Revelations Christians only read Revelations. Um, and one day we're going to do a sermon series on the book of Revelation and unpack the beauty in that text. But he did not have none of that spiritual formation. I remember sitting in my aunt's basement in Queens, listening to him unpack the book of Revelation, and I was shook out of my mind. Like those Left Behind movies and all that different stuff. I was absolutely terrified. And I've always thought that to encounter the devil would be this really spooky, really terrifying thing where you would see all these different figures flying out of the air. And this passage in, in Matthew 4 shows us quite the opposite about what it looks like to interact with the devil. He doesn't come with goblins. In essence, what he tries to do is get you to put your identity in something other than that which God offers us. So the scripture comes to us first in Matthew 4, and if you've got your Bibles or your iPhones, uh, and Androids as well, you can take those out. Uh, <laughs> Matthew 4, <laughs> verses 1 through 10, and for those watching at home, that'll be on the screen. Uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 10, and we'll read the first couple of verses right now. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of or comes from the mouth of God. So check this out. The enemy whose job is to steal, kill, and destroy everything that is good and holy in your life. What he comes to Jesus and does is he tries to turn God's declarations into your life, into contingencies. If you are the son of God, he says, then do this. Now, if you were to rewind uh, one chapter to Matthew 3, you see Jesus' entrance into ministry, and Jesus is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And immediately after he is baptized, it says a dove descends on his shoulder, and the voice of God the Father comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. God's declaration over Jesus, God the Son. The next chapter, what do we see happen? The enemy tries to put a question mark where God has already put a period. As a matter of fact, the enemy will try to put a question mark where God already put an exclamation point in your life. If you are the son of God. The question of identity, who are you? And there's a number of temptations that all of us will experience on a day-to-day -day or sometimes minute-to-minute -minute basis. Uh, the first lie of identity that the enemy tries to feed Jesus is this lie that I am what I do. Uh, if you're the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. You can do that surely, and then I'll believe you that you are truly the son of God. If you are a child of God, then you'll do this, this, and this. This is the first lie of identity that he presents to Jesus. Now, in our life, the way this plays out is that you and I start to believe, sometimes explicitly, but most of the time implicitly, that you and I are the summation of our moments. So if I ask you who you are, you're going to go back and rewind time however long and add up all the good and all the bad and all the in-between, and you from that will deduce who you are. So if you did something terrible, you're a bad person. If you're rooting for the Nets, you're bad. <laughs> if you do something good, then you're good. If you're inconsistent, then you start to believe not just that you struggle with inconsistency, but that you are inconsistent. And you'll notice it by the way that you talk about yourself. 
I'm such an idiot. I, ah, man, I'm just such a, ah, man, I'm just so inconsistent. I'm this. We start to believe the lie that we are what we do. Now, there's a number of problems with this, uh, mainly because with all of the lies of identity, whatever it is that you ground yourself on, it has to be able to support you in all of your weight, all of the time. What you do is not strong enough. It's like putting jello in the middle of a wheel of a bike. It won't even get you around the block. Because you will constantly be in the courtroom of your own performance, evaluating how am I doing, if that's going to determine who you are. And all of our accomplishments, no matter how good they are, they are, man, they're temporary. A couple of years ago, I read a quote about Whitney Houston, and Whitney Houston was the GOAT. Like, her voice was absolutely amazing uh, to hear her sing. She could sing anything. She could have sang the phone book, and people, that joint would have gone platinum. Um, and there was a, a, a quote about Whitney Houston before she was on the movie The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner. Uh, and all my Gen Z people, just pretend like you know who Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner are. <laughs> just ask your parents later. They'll tell you who they are. And um, uh, Whitney Houston, right before they were about to start filming, they had no idea where she was. And here's this mega superstar. They're about to start recording, and they can't find her anywhere. And finally, someone finds her, and she's in a trailer. But she's just, like, dejected and looking in the mirror. And she says to Kevin Costner, like, what if I'm not good enough? And he's like, what are you you're Whitney Houston. If you're not good enough, who is? Here's the thing about your performances, no matter how good it is, like they're temporary. You have to do it again, again, and again, and again, and again, and there is no end. Uh, personally, this is one of the challenges that I have as a preacher, uh, as a pastor in general, that one of the worst things you can do is preach a good sermon. And the worst thing you can do, and I say this in all sincerity, not, and not like, a thousand people have said this to me ever, but the worst thing you can say to any preacher is, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. If you say that, that is like, man, that is like a hit right into the veins of this performance-based identity which says, I am what I do, because you know what next week has to be? Next week got to be the I have a dream speech. <laughs> if you thought this was good, wait until next Sunday. When we believe that I am what I do, we're constantly chasing to one-up and to redo it because we have to earn it again. It's not settled. It's not fixed. So we're constantly anxious thinking about our performance. Uh, on a negative end, if we are what we do, then we'll never be able to find redemption from our failures. Like if you really disappoint yourself, not just other people, but like if you really live below the standard that you have determined that is good and righteous, it's almost impossible for you to be able to forgive yourself. Now I've had hundreds of conversations with people as a pastor talking about the concept of forgiveness. And I have given people countless scriptures about what forgiveness looks like. And I have had the same conversation over and over and over again that I understand this is what the Bible says. I know this is what God says about me, but I just can't forgive myself. Why is that? If we are nothing more than what we do, then failures will, 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 will mean that you and I are fundamentally flawed. Man, one of my favorite people in Scripture is this dude named Peter, and I think I like him because he makes me feel better about myself, and that's probably a bad, a bad reason to like him. But Peter had all of this zeal, but, like, his, his behavior never really matched with his zeal. So, like, he would always start out great. Like, you want somebody to start that race out? Well, Peter is your man, but eventually he would do things that always seemed to fall short. 
uh, there's this one portion of Scripture where Peter is with Jesus, and Jesus is prophesying to people and telling them what is about to happen in his life, that he is about to be betrayed and crucified. Not just that, but Jesus says, and all of you are going to leave. Peter says, yo, Jesus, I'm from the Bronx, bro. Like, everybody can leave, but I'm never going anywhere. And Peter is, he is resolute. Everybody else can deny you, but Jesus, it's me and you, bro, to the end. Jesus looks at him and lovingly tells him, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. Peter doesn't believe him. A series of events happen, and Peter starts to see how real it really is getting. And first, someone says, yo, I, yo, bro, you look familiar. Are you, were you with that dude, Jesus? Nah, I don't, I don't know him, man. Over and over and over again, Peter denies him. And then the scripture says that as he denies him the third time, it hits him. He has done the thing that he said he would never do. Scripture then says he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Now that, that bitter weeping, that, that deep contrition, that deep sorrow was not necessarily sorrow based on what he had done to Jesus, but sorrow on what he had done and letting his own, his own self down. Peter in these moments certainly had to be believing that he was what he did. And he so, so far fell, fell short of what it looked like to live a good and righteous life that he went out and wept bitterly. Not only did he go out and weep bitterly, but he left altogether. Scripture says that Peter straight up pieced it and that he goes out and he goes back to his former life, the thing that he knew best to do, which was fishing. Jesus, days later after he was resurrected, goes to the follower, his followers and asks, where's Peter? Peter was nowhere to be found. He was out by the dock fishing. And Jesus goes to Peter. And when Jesus goes to Peter, he doesn't ask him about the interaction that they had had. He doesn't say, Peter, why did you deny me? He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you, do you love me? Jesus was trying to remind Peter not of what he did or didn't do, but of his fidelity and their relationship one to another. See, if you believe that your successes make you who you are, then alternatively, you will believe that your failures will also make you who you are, and you will be subject to the day. What we do is not strong enough to bear the weight of our identity. Now, going forward in the text, we read in Matthew 4 and verse 5, it says, Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Now, the second lie we see in scripture, the lie of identity is, I am what other people think of me. So number one, the first lie is that I am what I do. And number two, the second lie is that I am what other people think of me. Here's why, he de- here's why we see this in the scripture. He tells Jesus to go to the pinnacle of the temple. This would have been Solomon's temple. And one of the best ways to understand this is like, this is like the Pope in Vatican City going out to that balcony that he walks out and, and, and delivers addresses to. So this would have been the most visible point in the city. And what the enemy is trying to tempt Jesus with is, if you're really the son of God, he quotes him Psalm 91 and says, go out, jump, and stunt for everybody. Do this amazing miracle, and I want you to manufacture a situation to prove God's faithfulness. Just so you can prove to other people 
that you are truly the Son of God. Now, this was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus' ministry would not start with flashy, uh, big things to do, but rather through humble service and through calling people to follow him who had no business being a follower of anybody of esteem. A lot of times, actually, when you see the scripture, when Jesus would heal somebody, he would tell them, listen, don't even, don't even tell anybody. Just go and offer your, your uh, sacrifice to the temple as in accordance with the law uh, of Moses. But essentially, what the enemy was trying to tempt Jesus to do was to seek the affirmation and the public approval of everyone. Now, I know nobody on this side cannot identify with that, so I'm going to talk to this side for a second. <laughs> Seeking the public approval of people Seeking affirmation for your behavior will rob the spiritual life out of you. And I know this in personal experience. It is impossible to live for God's well done when you're living for the good job of other people. These two things often live in complete tension with one another. So much so that when Jesus was teaching a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, given the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving all of these blessings to people. And these blessings have nothing to do with material gifts. These blessings have nothing to do with relationships. These blessings have nothing to do with vacations and jobs. These blessings that Jesus gives are, is a spiritual fortitude and a deep, real connection with God the Father uh, in, in a real way. And here's what Jesus says one of these blessings is, blessed, blessed are you when people revile you and they hate you, and they say all manner of evil against you for my sake. For so did they speak of the, the prophets that went before you. That to live with full integrity for God means that sometimes people just will not like you. Scripture says in 1 Peter that everybody who wants to live a godly life, everyone, will suffer persecution. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you are supposed to be receiving persecution all the time? No. That just means you're a jerk if that's what's happening in your life. However, if your entire existence, everybody's always saying, good job, good job, good job, then it might just be that you are believing that your identity is what other people think of you, and you are living your life down to the court of public opinion, trying to get a not guilty verdict every single day. And that's exhausting. That is absolutely exhausting, always worried about what people are thinking of you. And there's so much freedom in thinking to, them, to thinking to yourself and knowing to yourself, this person does not have a heaven or a hell to put me in. This person does not have a crown to give me or a crown to take away. This person is not the one that I'm living to hear well done uh, from. I'm living to hear well done, my good and faithful servant. So he tries to tempt Jesus in this way. And if I, I think if we're honest, uh, I think if we were to look at our days and our weeks, we would think about how much we are in search of public acceptance and public approval. Uh, my wife and I took a class with Pete and Jerry Scazzaro, and Jerry Scazzaro, she said something that was so profound, is a practice that she does, or that she had done at the end of her days, is that she would have a moment to herself where she would think to herself, what are the things that I did today that I said, that I didn't say, in order to gain the approval of people or to avoid their displeasure of me? And she would just sit down and she would write down these things, jokes that she laughed at that she probably shouldn't have laughed at, things that she said or didn't say in the day, just so she could start to chronicle and see how much she was living for the approval of other people. But here's what scripture says in Galatians 1 and 10. And if you are a recovering people pleaser like me, this might be one that you want to re uh, remember and memorize. It says this, for am I now trying to per persuade people or, or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I'm still trying to please people, I should not be a servant of Christ. 
Now again, this is not a license to be a jerk, but this does mean that our lives cannot be defined by the approval or disapproval of other people, but rather in faithfulness and fidelity to whatever it is that God calls us to be. So number one, the first lie is that I am what I do. The second lie is that I am uh, what other people think of me. And the third lie of identity is I am what I have. I am what I have. In verse 8, it says this, uh, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So third lie of identity is I, I am what I have. Now the paradox of this scripture where the enemy is tempting Jesus with all the kingdoms and uh, of the world is that these are Jesus's anyway. And what essentially what he was trying to get Jesus to do was to take a shortcut to what God the Father had already determined to be his. That the path to Jesus having all the kingdoms under his foot was not through showmanship and receiving it from the enemy, but rather through humble service and sacrifice and going through the cross. That he did have a crown waiting, but the, on the first he had to go through the cross. Now, let's look at this for a second and think about it. Jesus was taken to see all the magnificence of the earth. The devil says, look what everybody else has, um, and, uh, and, and tempts Jesus by trying to make him think his identity, who he was, if you are a child of God, if you are the son of God, then I will give you all of these things in uh, exchange to prove who, who you are. Now, here, here's the thing about believing this lie that I am what I have, and we believe this in so many different ways. This is not just physical. It's also circumstantial. So, a lot of people believe that I am what I have, and that's based on relationships. A lot of people believe that I am what I have, and that's based on the job you have. So if your job is miserable, if the relationship life is miserable, it's hard for us to understand and to receive what God says about us because we are subtly believing that we are what we have. So if we don't have the things that we, we want, we believe that God is unfaithful and untrue towards us. Now here's a challenge with what you have. Everything that you have, every relationship, every circumstance, everything in this world is subject to decay. Meaning, everybody you love, and this is a very cheerful thing to say, everybody you love is going to die. You are going to die. Every relationship you have will be severed. Hopefully, you die at 100 years old, surrounded by family and friends, and people speak well of you, and you have lived a fulfilling life, and it's a beautiful story that you have lived. But one day, just like the grass withers and fades away, you will too. And there will be people who depended on you who will not have you anymore. Everybody that you depend on and look to in relationship, every relationship will end. Every good thing that you have is subject to decay. Job, apartment, performance, whatever it is, it's all going to go away. Man, one of the most profound things I, I love in life is that sometimes you get really powerful truth from unlikely sources. And years ago, I heard an interview with Conan O'Brien and Conan O'Brien was starting to get heckled that he was losing the prominent spot in the prominent slots in nighttime television. And Conan O'Brien said, well, well, of course, this is, this is the natural progression of a comedian that I've had my day in 12 noon in the sun, and of course my career is going to fade away till nobody knows about me or cares about me. This is just a natural progression of comedy and of life on TV. And to try to hold on to this forever is like, it's foolish because nobody does that. 
And if you were to ask, like, who was the best comedian 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, nobody knows or nobody cares. One of the most humbling things is, like, talking to 12-year-olds. My niece is 12, and my, my, wife is a, my wife is a huge Will Smith fan. And um, she was like, I mean, we can talk to my niece about Will Smith. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's Jaden Smith's father. And we're like, oh, OK. <laughs> Will Smith, just the greatest actor, rapper. Yeah, I mean, that's Jaden Smith's father. OK, that's cool. And to an entire generation, he is Jaden and Willow Smith's dad. <laughs> Maybe he might be the, the genie that, if, if, if kids know the genie movie, he might be that as well. But Fresh Prince, no, he ain't that. Those days have, have gone. Every good thing you, 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 can, you are doing or can do, every title, every accomplishment, it's all subject to decay. And if you built your life around that, what you have, one day it's all going to come crashing down. Now, one of the things I've uh, part of my life and rhythm is that whenever time, whenever someone has uh, a friend that lost their spouse, lost their wife, if we're connected to each other, they usually reach out to me and say, Jordan, you're a widower. Can you talk to my friend who's also a widower? And from the first conversation, I can, I can tell within the first 10 minutes how difficult their road is going to be. And mainly, if they cannot conceive of themselves apart from their relationship with their late spouse, I know this is going to be a long, 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 painful journey ahead of them because they don't know who they are apart from her. Now, as much as you can love your spouse or love anybody, and those not saying it shouldn't hurt like crazy because it should to lose anyone who you love, uh, but they can't be your identity. Nothing that you have, no person, job, relationship, material possession, that can't bear the weight of what we do. And I think we would do well to evaluate actually how we're living now not just the theoretically or theologically, but are you living right now like you are what you have? Are you chasing down the next thing just so you can stunt for people? Is this a part of your life? And I think a lot of us would see, if we were to look honestly, that in many ways we're living like uh, we are what we have. The good news of the gospel is that you and I don't have to rely on what we do, on what other people think of us, or on what we have, but rather based on our identity is rooted not in you, but in, in God, in our union with Christ for everyone who has placed their faith in him. And that makes like a world of a difference because that can take you in and out of every single circumstance. In difficult times, we can know that we are held in the palm of God's hands. In confusing times, we can know that God has foreknown us before the foundation of the world and called us to be his own. And unless you and I continually experience uh, refreshment and revitalization from God, allowing ourselves to heed the voice of God, to speak into our lives, we're going to fall prey to the lies of the enemy. Now, I don't know if you've noticed the pattern that we see in Matthew 4, which is the enemy comes with a lie, and the best way to combat a lie is by rehearsing and repeating the truth. That's the same thing is true for Jesus, that he says, it is written, it is also written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus combats the lies of the enemy with the truth of Scripture over his life. And if you and I are going to uh, sever ourselves from the lies of the enemy, that I am what I do, I am what other people think of me, or I am what um, I, I have, then we're going to need a deep spiritual life where we are learning to abide with God in real rhythms to hear God speak to us and allow God to, faith, to, to form our faith and to shape our identity. Now, there's a problem to actually feeling that, though, right? So we can say this theologically, we can get deep and quote some scriptures right now, but like the real practice of it in so many different ways is a very different experience than that. 
Monday morning feels very different than sometimes it does right now. Uh, a couple years ago, one of my friends, she uh, was thinking and praying about adoption, and she uh, reached out to her community group and all the people on staff to pray with her about considering adopting a little boy from South Africa in an orphanage. And after months and months of prayer, she finally decided to uh, start the adoption process. And after months and months and thousands of dollars and trips back and forth to South Africa, she finally was able to bring that boy home. And I'll never forget the welcome party who welcomed him in at JFK that morning. And it was just like a beautiful thing to, to see. But something peculiar happened when she brought him home. At this point, he was probably around six or seven years old. And um, he would, she bought him all of these toys and all these different things for his room. And then she would go into his room after like, um, after a day or so, and then like she wouldn't be able to find any of his toys. And she was like, look all around. And finally, she would look under the bed, and she would see that he was hiding all of his toys under his bed. Now, even though his mother had flown across the world, done months and months of adoption paperwork, paid tens of thousands of dollars, he was still fearful that he was living life like he was in an orphanage. He didn't sense the, the full permanent nature of what his new transition in, uh, in circumstance. And he had been transferred from an orphanage to a permanent home, but yet he was still living like he was in an orphanage. So his mother, day after day, would go to him and say, listen, this is your apartment. That's your milk in the fridge. I'm lactose intolerant. I can't drink that. This is everything. These toys are yours. Everything that you see is yours. Nobody's going to come and take it. You are my son. Scripture says that God chose us before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons, as heirs, as recipients of God. And so many times we are living like we're still in the orphanage. We're living based on what we do. We're living based on what other people think of us. We're living based on what we have, and we're not living rooted in what God has offered us. Now, the recovery from that is to day by day hear the voice of the Father that, and allow God to shape us. And a lot of times in church and, and ministry, we try to find different ways to help people grow spiritually, and we try to sometimes and I'll say me, I, we try to sometimes give people shortcuts to a spiritually mature life, and there is none. The only way that you and I will be formed to have an identity rooted in our union with Christ is allowing God to speak to us on a daily basis. Now, how do we get to that point? I'm very glad you asked that. On Saturday, June 12th, we are having an Encountering God workshop where it's more than just understanding historical genres of Scripture, but it's how do we turn our moments, not necessarily five hours a day, but how do we turn our moments and our deliberate time into meaningful encounters with God, whereby we would learn how to pray contemplatively to receive God's words to us in prayer and in reading scripture. And listen, this is for literally everybody, irrespective of your spiritual uh, stage in life, how long you've been a Christian, all these different things. Uh, these are tools that I hope to give you in your tool belt that will allow you to grow deeper and deeper in your relationship with God and allow you to receive God's words over you. So I hope you will register. It's on our renaissancenyc.com slash events page. And I will see all of you hopefully next Saturday on that. And we're going to continue to learn what it means to receive our identity from God, not from the things that we do. We pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, I'm grateful for the words that you have spoken over us. I'm grateful that no matter what I feel about any given situation, you said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, for those moments where I feel confused and 
bewildered, and not sure what to do next. You say that I am your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, and you have prepared good things in advance for me to do. So, Father, I pray I would live out of your words for me, not anything I can do or muster up. God, continue to grow us deeper in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.